You're listening to the New Century Multiverse. Let them go. Chapter 9. A Quiet Moment Now, we're going to dig in for the night, said Cleo. You two sleep when you wish. I shall be up for the duration until the coach arrives. Dawson grunted in response, slumped down onto the bottle-green couch, and nursed his brandy, the hammer beside him, close to his hand. He had shut himself down and would not be spoken to. Concordantly, Rebecca directed her conversation only to Cleo. Whilst I was upstairs, was there any sign of it? The bog, I mean the man. Cavendish? Uh, no, no, I, I heard him call a while back. But... <gasps> and as if he could hear his name, a cry rose up outside. It was a way off and echoed across the garden, carried by the wind, but it was unmistakably from the being they had witnessed earlier. Both women froze, their eyes locked upon one another, as Cleo's mouth hung mid-sentence. Would anyone like a cup of tea? There was a tremor of tightly held desperation in her voice. Dawson shook his head. Rebecca laid both hands upon the shaking fingers of her aunt. Yes, please. Cleo squeezed them around the handle of her cane, then pulled away as she retreated to the kitchen. Rebecca selected the fire poker and followed, leaning against the doorway as the kettle was put upon the stove. You, you know, we, we never did get to talk after that awful man read Charles's will this afternoon, said Cleo, matter-of-factly. Retrieving cups. I considered calling you back the moment you started to leave, but I thought it best to allow you to let your distress out in the garden. She turned, leaning on her cane, and regarded her niece. I was going to say, when you had calmed down, that I don't actually give one solitary shit. What my brother wants done with his houses, and with your mother's shop. Rebecca took a moment to consider what had mattered to her so much a short while ago. I was also going to say, before Cavendish made himself known, that I shall sell Ravenwood. And that this might go some long way to paying off your father's debts. Of course, that would mean me coming to live with you at Blackthorn. If you'll have me. She poured in milk and added two teaspoons of sugar to each cup and a pair of digestive biscuits to each saucer. This way, you can continue to operate your business. That had been my intention, anyway. You would sell. 
the home you've lived in all this time? For us? Yes. Yes, I think I would. Cleo mused, looking around with dignified grace. It's been a mausoleum of one kind or another for years anyway. I may as well put the place to rest. Do you know, I haven't slept in the big bedroom since your Uncle Matthew died. The kettle began to whistle, wet steam escaping from the tiny apertures. The bed is too big. It feels empty and cold. The kettle was screaming now, and Rebecca winced at the noise, kicking herself for not cautioning her aunt earlier. She crossed the kitchen and snatched it from the range, pouring the nearly boiled water into the pastel-pink glazed teapot Aunt Cleo had placed beside it. They stood motionless for some moments. Amanda says she thinks the thing outside is a bar guest. What's a bar guest? I have no idea. Hmm. (laughs) Cleo smiled dryly. I remember when you were little, Amanda had the two of you convinced there was a monster living in a den not far from here. She said he was big and fat and ate anything that came near him, and that he hid in the mud so he could leap out at you when you least expected it. The Bobanap, Rebecca exclaimed in hushed recollection. I remember him. She used to tell you all sorts of stories about the unsuspecting people he ate and the clever children who could outwit him. And I recall thinking, good lord, this girl has a mind for captivating others. There, I determined, is a storyteller. He was a pig. He was the Stacy's pig. And when she finally showed him to us, Timothy was so scared he couldn't accept he was looking at a farm animal. She made the bobanap real. And from then on it was, Timothy, if you don't finish your cabbage, then the bobanap will. And you along with it. Oh, he was such a serious little boy. Cleo's green eyes misted over. He didn't like the idea of Father Christmas at all, either, did he? Made me lock the door to his room so the big red man couldn't come in. That means he was still too young when he died to know Father Christmas isn't real. It's strange to think that this would have brought him some comfort. A remarkable boy, really. Your father blamed me for what happened to him. Rebecca started to say something, but Cleo looked back at her with soulful, frightened, honest eyes. So she held her tongue. And what's worse, was at the time I rebutted that blame. I told him you children were grown up and sensible enough to make your own decisions. But of course you weren't. She drew a painted wicker kitchen chair away from the table and slowly cautiously perched herself onto it. We put so little responsibility upon the young. And then suddenly, all the weight of the world, all at once. I wonder why you don't break, you poor things. Rebecca propped her head upon her hands, elbows on the table, as she considered a response to this. But from Cleo's expression, she could see none was required. So of course... 
Eventually, I came to see that he was right. It had been my fault. Mine and Matthew's. You were our guests. There's nothing clearer. I am deeply sorry that you have lived with this for so long, but you're wrong. What happened to Timothy was my fault. You were ten years old. Nobody could blame a child. Do you recall what happened at Christmas dinner when I was eight? Cleo's lips curled into a smile. Of course I remember. You served us up a sumptuous turkey with all the trimmings just out there. She gestured to the dining room across the hall. You'd spent all morning preparing it on your own. Hours of only being able to pop in and out of our Christmas morning, aside from that 20 minutes you spent trying to get Timothy to confront his stocking. You put all that effort in and served out dish after dish until you got to the last one. And when you finally sat down and went to pour the gravy over it... You reached across and spilled your punch directly into my dinner. Yes. It was drowned in this beetroot red turkey soup. And what did I do? You... you swapped our plates. Exactly. Without a word, save for apologies. And I was eight. Absolutely old enough to know right from wrong, clever from stupid. And two years later, on that day, I considered the risks and decided that the joys of playing hide-and-seek were worth the dangers. But there's a period when you're young, when you can justifiably make mistakes due to lack of experience. And it comes back when you're very old and you've had so much experience that you start to forget some of it. But I was... And I I hope I still am in that window in between. Where you mustn't make mistakes? Where things going wrong are your fault. Whether you blame yourself because you were the adult or because you were our host, and whether I was old enough to know better or young enough not to blame myself, I can't change the fact that Father blamed me all the same. She gazed into the light trail of steam escaping the teapot as it curled upwards, going from white to strands of pale grey and finally becoming invisible. It was a burden, and I bore it. Dear child, shall we share the blame and spite him? (sighs) I think that would be bearable. Rebecca poured the tea, bringing the cups to the table to sit with her aunt. They both sighed and busied themselves with inhaling the calming aroma as they sipped. I I don't know who to talk about now. I've been wanting to tell you that I'm sorry I couldn't be here for Uncle Matthew's funeral. You were dealing with your mother. Cleo replied with an absolving gesture. I'm sorry I could not be with you for her funeral. Or your father's. I shall not be absent again. This promise sent their minds inevitably to the next funeral they must both attend which would be Rafe's. Rebecca's hand trembled as she stammered a toast. To the men in our lives who went first, she said, proffering her teacup. Cleo clinked against the china with a wry, sad expression.
Rebecca dropped her teacup, spilling hot brown liquid all over the kitchen floor. She was staring over Cleo's shoulder. Her aunt slowly turned around to see a blurry shape at the window emerging from the darkness. A face with two sharp orange eyes. Cleo got to her feet and moved the kettle back to the stove. The face had disappeared. Rebecca strained to see it through the shadows outside. She perceived a smear across the periphery of the back garden and knew it was watching. The kettle began to whistle again, low now as there was less water inside. Keep it round the back for a moment, Cleo said firmly and hobbled out of the kitchen. Rebecca snatched up the poker from the table and gave a sharp rap upon the sink. The smear, faintly illuminated by the oil lamp within the kitchen itself, moved closer. Rebecca rapped on the sink twice more, and it was there at the window again. The speed with which it had crossed the space had been the most frightening aspect. How could they hope to outmaneuver this thing? Rebecca let her focus go slack, and she glanced in its vague direction. Aware of its frame behind the glass, but never looking directly. Then she heard the front door open. So did the watcher at the window. Oh no. She rushed back into the living room, only to see Aunt Cleo walking out into the moonlit night. It was a limping stride favoring her left leg, but one of determination. Her cane stood propped by the stairs. She made her way the hundred yards across the lawn, straight for the partially illuminated body of Rafe. Rebecca turned back to the kitchen window. The smear was gone. Cleo reached Rafe and found his shotgun off to one side, kneeling down painfully. She turned the young man over, parted his coat, and felt in the breast pocket. Cleo! yelled Rebecca from the doorway. The older woman's hand shot out, fingers splayed, holding her niece at bay. She found three cartridges in there, and with some difficulty broke the shotgun open, using the moonlight to find the edge of the chamber. Then the shape emerged from the right side of the house. It was moving towards Cleo at speed. She had one chance. Snapping the shotgun closed, she dug the stock into the grass and used it to push her knelt position sideways and face her attacker. Then, with a single abrupt movement, she shouldered the gun and took aim. He was ten yards away, then three. Cleo pulled the trigger. Cavendish's head erupted as a large portion of the skull came away, snapping him backwards mid-sprint and spraying the contents of his cranium into the night over the lawn, away from Cleo. The body twitched and lay still, though she heard him expel what she hoped would be his last rattling gasp. Devil! Cleo hissed, and using the gun to get painfully to her feet, she began to make her way back to the house. Rebecca was awestruck as she watched her new hero return. There was pride in that aged face now, a sense of completion. Cleo was just ten yards away when the other two attacked. They came from either side, charging out of the darkness, their ragged, panting breath getting louder as they closed in. Cleo spotted them a moment before Rebecca did. The older woman had one second left to make a choice. She flung the shotgun towards her niece, and as Rebecca caught it, the two creatures converged on Aunt Cleo. She hit the ground hard with the female on top of her. Rebecca screamed and aimed the shotgun in blind panic. 
it clicked empty, and Aunt Cleo fell under two heaving, writhing, feeding bodies in the dark. They took no notice of Rebecca as she staggered backwards into the house, just as Dawson slammed the door. Listening to the New Century Multiverse. Let them go. Episode 9 A Quiet Moment. Written, narrated, and directed by Alexander Shaw. Rebecca Wolverton, performed by Sharon Shaw. Cleo Spencer, performed by Loretta Saylor. Overheat, Seventh Seal, and Vanishing, composed and performed by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Many soundscapes provided by Tabletop Audio. The production of New Century is funded by our Patreon heroes. And our special $15 sponsors get their names written in the stars. So thank you to Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Rune Lord Firionel, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Sarah Montgomery, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. Matthew was killed several years ago while in the nearby town, selling five rabbits he had hunted. A horse and cart collided with him. It took two days in hospital to pass on. Cleo was with him at the end. Among his last words, he told her to reach out to her brother Charles and heal the wounds between them.